0: You're listening to the Bible Teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning is from Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 25, if you want to follow along with me. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks
1: be to God. All right, so in 1999 the movie The Sixth Sense took the box office by storm. It made more money than Toy Story 2, The Blair Witch Project, The Matrix, and American Beauty, which is actually the film that beat it out for Best Picture that year. In fact, the only movie that made more money than uh, The Sixth Sense that year was Star Wars Episode 1, the introduction of chlorians. I knew I'd get a boo out of Pastor David. But the question had to become, why did the movie do so well? It was unexpected. I mean, but to us, 22 years later, the answer's obvious, right? Mystery. But more than that, it's a revealed mystery. Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it in the last 22 years, that's on you. Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. He was dead the whole time. But it was this plot twist that catapulted the previously and relatively unknown director of M. Night Shyamalan to heights that people were dubbing him the next Steven Spielberg. And it, it was this plot to because it, it was the way that he baked it into the narrative. It caused people to praise him for it. And, and that was an appropriate response. See, it, it caused people to go back and rewatch the film with the information that they now had to see the things that they might have missed that would have given the hint away. And it caused them to run and tell their friends about, hey, you got to see this thing. you got to see this movie. See, several times in the book of Romans so far, we've seen Paul arrive at a theological conclusion that causes him to break out in praise and worship, right? Remember back in Romans chapter 7, Paul is wrestling over how we can be simultaneously justified and sinful, and he gets to the point where he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then in Romans 8, when he's reveling in the fact that those whom God has called are as good as glorified, how does he end it? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor things present nor things to come, nor angels nor rulers nor powers, nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And now, in Romans 11, at the end of a lengthy section about God's sovereignty And wisdom in salvation, what does Paul say? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. The pattern is obvious. Extravagant truth about God requires exuberant praise for God. See, in our text this morning, it's about God's wisdom. It's about his sovereignty. It's about his mercy and his justice. It's about his mystery. It's about his transcendence, the fact that he is holy and majestic and completely unlike us. But it's also about his imminence, the fact that he comes to his people. He is with us. He knows our pains, and one day he's going to set them all right. And I believe we're going to see all that in our text this morning. See, I believe the main point about this text is that God reveals the mystery of his wisdom so that he would be praised by his people. Not so that we can wrap our heads all the way around him, but but also not so that we can dismiss everything and say that, God, truth is really unknowable. We can't really know God for sure. No, he reveals the mystery of his wisdom so his people will respond in praise, in awe, in reverence, in adoration of him, the true all-wise and merciful God. And I believe we can see that in our text this morning. We're going to look at it in three points. Revealed mystery, required wisdom, and resulting glory. Revealed mystery, required wisdom, and resulting glory. So let's start with point number one, revealed mystery. See, we, we love a good mystery. We love it because mysteries actually engage our curiosity. And it's, it's kind of, we're hardwired to try to figure things out. The proverb says, it's the glory of God to conceal things, but it's the glory of kings to search things out. It's why when you're watching a horror film, you're spending literally, you know, you know going into it, you're spending every second trying to figure out who did it before it gets to the end and they reveal it. And it's why we love magic. Because we know we just got tricked, but we're sitting there going like, how did he do that? See, we love a good mystery, but we, leave it, we love it even more when we're in on it. We love it more when we're in on it. And our text this morning reveals to us a divine mystery, but hear this, one that we are getting let in on. Verse 25b says, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Paul's saying, I'm going to let you know. I don't want you to not know. See, over the last few chapters, Paul has been opening up to us the mysterious wisdom of God's working in salvation. He's given us the the -the behind-the-scenes Uh, commentary, as it were. It's like if you were watching your favorite movie, and you had the director sitting right there with you. See that shot, how I zoomed in right there? I did that for a reason. See, but we should note that Paul is revealing this mystery to us for a purpose, right? Verse 25a, lest you be wise in your own sight. The most common word used in the Proverbs for a fool is one that could be translated obstinate. One author says it like this, the main mark of a fool is that they are opinionated. They're pig-headed. They're wise in their own eyes. They are unable to learn knowledge or be corrected. That's a biblical fool. A fool in the Bible is someone who thinks more highly of themselves than they probably should. Someone that thinks more highly of their understanding, their ability to figure it out. Someone that thinks more highly of their own opinions. They think more highly of their own knowledge than they ought. And here, Paul is beginning our text by saying, I'm going to let you in on this because I don't want you to go around acting and speaking like fools. I don't want you to go around thinking that you know more than you actually do. And so Paul, uh, he's giving us this purpose statement for this final portion of this section of Romans that we've been in. And one thing that I've learned from reviewing books over the years is that if an author tells you why they wrote the book, if they give you a thesis, a purpose statement, then everything that you read for the rest of the the book needs to be read through that lens. It needs to come back to that. And so Paul did not write Romans 9 through 11 so that we would be wise in our own eyes, which leads us to arrogance. He wrote this section so that we would delight in the perfect, mysterious wisdom of God, which leads us to worship. See, here in this conclusion of this section, Paul is wrapping up the answer to a question, and the question is this, how can God bring in people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, while also remaining faithful to his covenant with the people of Israel? And he answers it for us real, real kind of cut and dry in verse 26. He says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. So what we need to remember from our time spent in Romans 9 is that the hardening of human hearts is actually passive on God's behalf. R.C. Sproul says it's because of the fall, it's because of our bent to do evil, uh, that when God hardens a heart, or, or a whole people in this case, he's really just allowing them to chase after the evil things that they already want. He's really just allowing us to run after the evil that we're already disposed to. He's not pushing us off a cliff. He's just not catching us either. And in this way, God is hardening Israel, the ethnic people of the Jews here, as the message of the gospel goes out to the rest of the world. And the word partial um, is actually really, really important for us to understand here because the Greek phrase could be translated a portion of Israel. And so God is still saving those who are ethnically Jewish. We don't want to dismiss that. We want to understand that. God is still saving those that are ethnically Jewish, whether it's a slow trickle over time, kind of like if you have a a hose and someone kinked it and only a little bit's getting through at a time, or if it's going to be a large flood of a revival at the end of history when, like, opening up that hose and letting everything through. Scholars are actually divided on that. But what Paul is almost certainly saying is, is that not everyone who is ethnically Jewish will be saved, but on the last day, all that God has um, elected to salvation amongst the Jews absolutely will. Absolutely will. Because Paul writes in verse 29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God made a promise to Abraham that he would save his descendants, who, like Abraham, called upon him by faith. And God is not one to go back on his promises. Amen? Amen. See, but part of this mystery is that he's showing them it's all up to God and his mercy. No one merits their way into the kingdom. We, we only come into the kingdom through Christ's merit. And this is, this is one of the things that truly sets Christianity apart from every other religion human, humanity has ever seen. God's grace and his mercy. So you remember back in the early chapters of Romans, right? Chapter one, Paul's making his argument against the irreligious to say that, like, no, see, the, the things of God were plain to you. You, you, could, you could perceive them, and you didn't even hold yourself accountable to your own standards. And so he says, the irreligious, y'all are under judgment. But then he, he, it's like he pivots in chapter two and looks at the religious community, the Jews, and he says, like, you guys had the law. You guys were God's covenant people, you are God, and you still didn't keep it. And so they're under judgment. And what's his conclusion in chapter 3? He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The irreligious were guilty for not keeping the law, and the religious were guilty for not keeping the law perfectly. And so we're all guilty. We've all been disobedient. We all land in the same bucket, and the only hope that we have is for God to be merciful. You can't just hope your good outweighs your bad on the last day. That's not how God works. You, like the rest of us, need God to be merciful to you in Christ. And Paul is going to great lengths here to show us this again. Jews and Gentiles, both of them are sinners, and both are saved in the same way. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on on all, verse 32 says, Jews and Gentiles alike, both groups, all have been, been disobedient, and he needs to have mercy upon them. See, and as we've said before, the revealed mystery of the gospel isn't why would God choose to save some and not others? That actually puts us in God's seat. It makes us wise in our own eyes. We're thinking things that are above our pay grade, so to speak. Now, the mystery of God's mercy is why would he choose to save anyone at all? And it's when Paul draws this conclusion, when he stands back in amazement at the God of such extravagant grace, he begins to break out in praise. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Paul stands in view of this beautiful, wonderful, perfectly wise God he's floored. But maybe you're not. Maybe you look at this God and you're actually turned off by him. He's too big to understand, right? We can't fit him him into any of our boxes. Or maybe you say, man, he's way too rigid with that justice. I'd like my God to be a little bit more laid back because I make some mistakes from time to time. And so we we need wisdom to understand God's mercy. And so let's look at point number two, required wisdom. It's been, um, it's been pretty well documented over the last several years that a growing number of Americans are falling into the category that, that's been labeled spiritual, but not religious. Spiritual, but not religious. And in an article for The Atlantic, um, Caroline Kitchener, wrote that Americans are leaving the church rapidly and for a lot of reasons. It's a very complex mess of reasons why people are leaving the church, but interestingly, she writes, instead of atheism, however, they're moving toward an identity captured by the term spirituality. They reject organized religion, but maintain a belief in something larger than themselves. And as of 2018, uh, an approximated 64 million Americans, that's one in five, that's 20%, that's a huge number, would identify in this group as spiritual but not religious. And, And see, that group of spiritual but not religious, it actually has a divide in it. It might not be everyone that just jumped to your mind when I brought it up. It has both mystics and stoics in it. Mystics and stoics. Well, what do those mean? Mystics. According to Elizabeth Petroff, um, writing at Christianity Today, she writes, "...mystics may be found in every religious tradition, sometimes as central participants, but often on the periphery of accepted practice, for they map out new experiences of the divine." See, a mystic is someone who says, the dogma of religion, now that's way too confining. No, they say, we we can't really know anything about God for sure, so I can kind of practice my spirituality in my own way. I I can get along with the Christians, I can get along with the Buddhists, I can get along those in Islam, because everyone kind of seems to have their hand on this God in some way, and so I can kind of practice my spirituality by being with anybody, because God is just a spirit, and he leads me in that way. And maybe there are some mystics even in this room because uh, they appreciate the vibes they get here. Maybe as the lights were circulating during the first set of worship, you guys were really enjoying that. See, but they're not interested in committing themselves to the local church. No, that's way, way too rigid for for the mystics. But Stoics, on the other hand, um, Douglas Moo writes that Stoicism is preoccupied almost exclusively with ethics. It seeks to answer the question, how can the wise man live in accordance with nature? See, a Stoic is someone preoccupied with the way that they ought to live. So there may be Stoics in here as well. Stoics may not want to be confined to Christianity, but they they really appreciate the morals of this guy named Jesus. They really appreciate the morals that Christianity teaches. Stoics are going to pick and pull things to help them make good decisions, to be respectable citizens here in these United States of America. And maybe they'll be in in Christianity because they want to raise their kids with a moral compass. See, but both are on the rise because while so many see the truth of a higher power, for these, these groups, they can't deny it. Fewer and fewer people actually see the necessity of tying themselves to Christianity to get what they want out of it. And why is that? Well, it's, it's because we're enlightened 21st century Western people, of course. See, we, think, we, we see things like human dignity and morality and the equality of men and women. The, these things are just plainly obvious to us. We don't, we don't need a religion to tell us that. We don't need Christianity to come along and tell us these things. See, but there's, a, there's a pretty big problem with that. One author, Rebecca McLaughlin, writes this. She writes, To our 21st century Western ears, love across racial and cultural difference, the equality of both men and women, the idea that the poor can make moral claims on the strong, rich, and powerful, these sound like basic moral common sense, but they are not. These truths have come to us from Christianity. Rip that foundation out and you won't uncover a better basis for human equality and rights you'll uncover an abyss that cannot even tell you what a human being is. Did you see that? Both the mystic and the stoic, they're both taking things for granted. Things that have their roots in Christianity, in the Christian faith, that came to us from the Christian faith. And and though both groups are coming at it from different directions, the mystic and the stoic, they're, they're both engaging with Christianity in essentially the same way. They're dipping back into Christianity to put together a spirituality that ultimately makes uh, no sense because it's been ripped from its foundation. They've undercut the things that have actually brought us the Christianity that they want to pick and pull from. See, both the mystic and the stoic, they're going to consult Christianity for its teachings. But in doing so, they're treating the God of the Bible like one item among many at a buffet line. Just kind of something to throw on their plate along with the mix of everything else. They want the God of the Bible to be their assistant, their consultant, but, but not demand their whole lives. See, and one, uh, a former pastor in New York City, Tim Keller, he, he wrote, or he, he tells this, this story of this illustration that, like, changed his life. And he said a Sunday school teacher, I think it was when he was in college, gave this illustration and the teacher said, all right, so let's assume that the distance between earth and the sun, which is 92 million miles, let's assume that that distance is flattened to the th- thickness of a sheet of paper. And if that's the case, then the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high. And if that's true, then the diameter of the galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. Then he says, the galaxy is just a speck of dust in the universe. But the author of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ himself holds it all together with the word of his power. And the teacher asked this question. Is this the kind of person you invite into your life as an assistant? Is this the person that you invite into your life as a consultant? No, of course not. We all know that answer. Of course not. This is the person you give your whole life to. He upholds the universe with the power of his word. The Psalms are going to say it's by his pinky that he holds it all together. And we're going to consult him? Ask him for advice and then kind of ditch the parts that we don't like. No, you don't take bits and pieces of what he says and then throw out the rest. You give him everything. But that's not how we often respond, is it? That's not how we respond. And you know what, friends? I'm here to to break it to you. God knows this about us. Right? Jesus says it like this in Matthew chapter 11. He says, but to what shall I compare this generation? See, Jesus is, is, is looking at our mindset. He knows this about us, and he calls us fussy little school children who only want what we want and the way that we want it. See, so but here's the thing. He's not what you want. He's not. He's better. See, if, if you're a person that's sitting here saying, like, I want a spirituality that's mysterious and mystical, Deuteronomy 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord. You literally cannot get to the depths of mystery and spirituality found in a relationship with the triune God of the Bible. You can't, this is the God who called everything that is into existence by his word. He spoke it out of nothing. We can't even imagine out of nothing. Like, do this with me real quick. Shut your eyes. Think of nothing. Think of nothingness. You're probably thinking of maybe an empty space or a dark room. That itself is something. We can't even fathom what it is to call everything into existence out of nothing. And this is the God of the Bible who's called us into a relationship with himself. There's more depth of mystery and spirituality found in him than anywhere else you're looking. But maybe to the Stoic, you want a God who's just, he's righteous and moral and calls his followers to live likewise. Check this out. In verse 36, Paul is literally lifting a quote from Roman Stoic philosophy when he says, from him and through him and to him are all things. He's saying that all this God that the Stoics are talking about, man, he, this God of the Bible blows them out of the water. This is the God you're thinking of. His judgments are inscrutable and his ways cannot be improved upon. He's more mystical than the mystics can even dream of, and he is more stoic than the stoics can even imagine. And so if that's the case, then the problem isn't with God. It's with us. It's not because he doesn't have enough mystery or enough morality. It's because we want something that he is not. The problem is that we've been making an excuse. We we want him to play that flute. but But then we want him to play the dirge. And none of it's ever good enough. See, but that's not what God demands. He doesn't demand, he he doesn't ask for half measures. He doesn't want you to be lukewarm and unuseful because he spits that out of his mouth. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. But what is that wisdom and revelation? How does that actually change us? How does it get into our hearts? What does that mean? This transcendent God, how does that meet us? Point number three, resulting glory. Look with me in verses 34 and 35. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? See, these are actually pretty interesting citations. If you've got a Bible with cross-references, is it cross-references in it, you'll notice that here Paul is citing Isaiah 40 and various parts of Job. And so why is that important? Well, Isaiah 40 comes right on the heels of a section where the fall and deportation of God's people was prophesied. Israelites in Judah, God's, God's son, were gonna be dragged out of their homes. And we know that Job was the quintessential innocent sufferer, right? He did nothing wrong, yet, Calamity upon calamity came into his life. Terrible things that the scripture tells us God allowed to happen. And we know that Paul was no slouch in the scriptures. And so we have to imagine that he knew what he was doing when he cited these passages, and he did it on purpose. But what does it mean? Friend, it means that your pain is not trivial. It it, it means your grief and your agony is not unknown to God. It's not as if he doesn't know it's happening or see it coming. Paul is citing some very well-known painful texts that, hear this, this is a hard word, but hear this, he is worthy of our praise in it. Even in it. And that could be cold comfort, I know that, but it means that he sees you. Even in the midst of the hardest seasons of your life, he is working He's not far off. In all of his sovereign wisdom, he is working for, hear this, your highest good and his greatest glory. I was reminded yesterday of a quote that says, um, if we knew that everything that God knows, we would ask for exactly what he gives us. Because he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And how do I know that? See, The gospel writers tell us that this majestic and transcendent God that I've been describing, the one that we've been praying to all morning, the one that we've been singing of and singing to, see, the writers tell us that he did not stay far off, but he came to dwell with his people. As Pastor David put it in a poem some years ago, the infinite became an infant. He wrapped himself in human flesh and became like us in every respect, yet without sin. See, he came to his people, but he, but he didn't fit the mold of what we wanted. He played the flute, and we asked him to play a dirge. He played the dirge, and we asked him to play the flute again. See, he didn't fit what we wanted, so we hung him on a cross. See, but unlike Israel, Jesus wasn't kicked out of his home. He left it on purpose. See, and unlike Job, Jesus was actually the world's only truly innocent sufferer. See, Jesus went to the cross. He left his home, hear this, so that we could be welcomed in. On the cross, Jesus suffered so that one day we wouldn't have to. And right now, if you have trusted in him by faith, then this great and majestic God is near to you. He calls you his child, His spirit cries with your spirit out to our Father in heaven. Jesus Christ right now is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father. Yet, he draws near to us by his spirit. And one day, he's going to return to set all things right. See, back in verse 26, Paul quotes Isaiah and says that the deliverer will come from Zion. Now, actually, uh, Paul misquotes Isaiah here. In Isaiah 59, it says the Redeemer will come to Zion. See, and like we said, Paul is no slouch with the scriptures. So we have to ask the question, why did he change it? It's because he's already come. He's already come to his city. He's already come to his people, and they rejected him. But right now, he is ruling and reigning, and he will come again. This time, from his throne. Friends, this is is the greatest mystery... The world has ever known and we are in on it. We're in on it. God is the greatest director in human history revealing these mysteries to us so that we would um, praise him, so that we would glorify him, so we'd run and tell others, so that we would revel in his wisdom, so that we would look back at our own lives, so that we'd look back at the pages of scripture and redemptive history and revel in the wisdom of God to see his fingerprints all over it from the beginning. Friends, he he does this so that we would praise him. God reveals the mystery of his wisdom so that he would be praised by his people. And we see that on full display here in the gathered congregation. Psalm 73 says that it's when we enter into the sanctuary of God, when we're gathered with his saints in worship, that we see not only him, but his actions in the world most rightly. Rightly. We see that ultimately the wicked aren't going to prosper. We see ultimately death does not have the final word. We see that pain and sickness one day will be no more here as we worship together. So friends, let's engage with this majestic God. Let's engage with this holy God that came near to us and still draws near to us by his spirit. Let's worship him now with our mouths and leave this place worshiping him with our whole lives, giving him everything. Not treating him as a consultant, but giving him everything. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, you.